you're hearing the voice of the Lord. And his voice breaks up strongholds. His voice liberates souls. His voice can literally turn a life around in one whisper from God. And so being the power of God's voice is that powerful. We are really pursuing how to hear his voice clearly. And there are a few men on the planet that I would rather have teach us on this than Alan Vincent. Uh, Alan and I met quite a few years ago up in, believe it or not, Canada. God somehow chose Canada. And, uh, and Alan uh, called Hope and I out of the crowd and wanted to meet us. And he said that God has spoke to me that he's going to move in Southern California. And uh, I want to be connected there. And Alan and I developed a relationship. It's been quite a few years now. He comes in once a year. He's an apostle uh, to thousands of churches and hundreds of apostles and pastors all over the world. It is such an incredible privilege to have him here this morning. And tonight he's going to impart. I told him one of the things last night. I said, Alan, when you come, nobody teaches like you can teach. But what we come after is the anointing of God that is in you and on you. And we're going to suck it right out of you. So let's draw upon the anointing on Alan. Let's welcome. Let's honor the man of God this morning. Alan. I see. Yeah, there you go. You got it. I thought it meant mute on. No. Okay. Let's get into a posture. Let's get into a posture of receiving. The Apostle Paul said, I want to come to you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. That would be your water. Okay. So let's, let's get into a posture of receiving. The Bible says that God told Moses, put upon Joshua a portion of your spirit. So let's let's believe for an impartation today, okay? All day, today, this morning, and tonight. Father, we are here uh, knowing that you are the source of everything spiritual, but that you flow through human vessels. And so, Lord, we honor uh, Alan today, and we honor the anointing on his life. And we ask an impartation into this congregation of the healing anointing, the prophetic, and mostly hearing your voice. So make it a positive today. Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Well, then I want to just really give my testimony because I've got a lot of teaching, but I just want to tell you how I got to where I got. And I just want to say that tonight, um, one of the things that God said to me a few years ago was that a lot of people don't come to meetings. And he told me to start behaving the way that the Apostle Paul did in Acts chapter 19 when we read there that extraordinary miracles were happening through him and when people brought cloths and handkerchiefs to him and took them and laid them on sick people demons went out and they were healed so he said I want you to start doing that so I'm telling you now if you know anybody who's got a a particularly a a serious life-threatening disease if you bring a cloth a handkerchief or a cloth or something like that tonight, we'll, we'll anoint them with oil, we'll pray over them, and you can take them to these people. So I'm warning you this morning so that you can bring them. So I'm not going to supply the cloth, but we will supply the anointing. Amen? Amen. So, so just bring them with you, and 
I could, I, we've had hundreds of testimonies, that, hundreds and hundreds of testimonies around the world of the amazing miracles that God has done when we just obey, obey his word. Um, so I just want to start with saying that some of you know a little bit about me, but some of you don't know anything about me. But I grew up in a, a typical British Baptist church with no life in it. And by the age, and I, met, I was made to go to church every Sunday. My family was a church-going family. And, um, and I hated every minute of it. And at the age of 14, I, I finally made life so miserable for my parents that they stopped forcing me to go to church anymore. And I was free. And I was much more interested in the outdoor life, you know, climbing and, uh, out and uh, camping and then later on motorbikes. That was my life. I went on to you know, college and did physical chemistry as my main subject and joined the Kodak Film Company in Harrow, England in the research laboratory and I was very successful as a research scientist. By this time, I had become what I call an atheist of convenience. I, mean, I just thought, well, if there's no God, I haven't got to bother about him. So I, was just, I, I wasn't a militant atheist. I was just, if old ladies need something to lean on, but, but I don't need that. And, um, and, and, and I used to sometimes enjoy having debates with Christians and I thought I could make them look stupid. I was a convinced evolutionist, of course, a convinced everything. Um, but I, I lived an upright life. I didn't uh, go off the rails. I, I still was a virgin when I married. I, I still um, paid my taxes honestly and I even drove up the speed limit long before I was converted. I, I believed in... In fact, I, I believed in upright righteousness. It was a principle. In fact, one of my uh, horrible prides was that I could live a better life without God than most Christians could live with their God. So I, I wasn't in any deep desperate need. And then uh, the other thing that I will say was that I, uh, in addition to my research um, uh, work, and I specialized in products and processes related to the printing industry. So I became, um, I did a course on on high quality color printing just to get the feel of what it was like so that I could design products which really were, were appropriate for that. So I became an expert in printing technology and I began to lecture part time in a, in a college of, of printing students on the sciences related to the printing industry. And I found I really enjoyed teaching students. I, I loved sort of to take fairly difficult scientific concepts and and I waited until the lights went on and I really thought, they've got it, they really understand what I'm talking about. And um, uh, so I, I was doing very well and I, I made certain inventions which made a lot of money for Kodak, but all the patents were filed, by, world patents were filed, but I, paid, I was paid one silver dollar by US, by Washington, New York, for every patent. Just once, I still got a little box of these silver dollars for every, every patent. But they got the patent rights. They made a lot of money out of my inventions. And, and they weren't, in my view, paying me right. My boss looked, longed to pay me more money, but he said, look, in, we have a, a, a rigid set, a salary structure until the age of 30. So we can only, I can only pay you so much. He said, but if you just wait till you're 30, then then I can really give you what you're worth. So just hang around and it'll be okay. Well, I got fed up with hanging around. So at the age of 25 or 26, I saw a, a, an advertisement for a new kind of educational institution. It was called a College of Advanced Technology attached to Nottingham University. And the idea was to, to produce uh, people who not only 
had the academic theory but had the practical skills to produce present day technologies and they were attaching this to Nottingham University and they were advertising for a senior lecturer in printing technology because that was a, a, a vast centre of printing technology so I thought well I love, I love that job but I, I've only done a bit of part time lecturing there's no way they'd give me the job but I, so I decided to make an application to, told my boss to push him to get the maximum rise for me you know the sort of gamesmanship you're going for so I told my boss I thought I've applied for this job and it, the salary is almost double what you're paying me um, uh, so he, he ran around desperately trying to get a bigger raise for me which was, which was my intention but to my surprise they invited me to come for an interview and even more to my surprise they offered me the job and I was totally thrown by that so I ended up going to Nottingham and, and lecturing for two years in the university there and, uh, you know, and the salary almost doubled and, and I really thought I'd arrived um, and uh, during that time uh, I realised the academic life didn't suit me it wasn't challenging enough so I was thinking of going back into industry and finding the right vacancy so I let my boss in Kodak know and he was running around trying to uh, get, get a big uh, salary break from me and then Rochester, New York the American parent company who had known me through all my patents when they heard that I was possibly on the uh, you know, market they began to it caught me to come and join them in Rochester, New York. So I was facing this situation. Uh, you could just see how God works. I must add one more thing, is that for the last few years of her life, I had a, a Christian grandmother who was converted in the Welsh Revival. She was a powerful intercessor, and she spent the last seven years of her life in my parents' home. They looked after her until she died. She was already in her late 80s. She was about, I think, 95 when she died. But she, she fixed her beady eyes on me one day. <laughs> and in fact, she used to give me a New Testament every Christmas. I'm, I'm ashamed to say I used to throw them away. I, I, but she, she, fixed, she fixed her beady eyes on me. She said, Alan, she said, I've been praying for you. And she said, today God promised me that he's going to save you. And that you're going to serve Jesus for the rest of your life. I thought she was nuts. Now, she never saw... That, but she declared it not as a possibility but as a, as, as a fact it was already a fact of faith it was a done deal she knew how to get things by faith and she died uh, before she saw the fulfilment of her prayers but I'm sure they were a big factor in what happened to me because when I got my brand new house in Nottingham we got an easy mortgage man of your substance no problem Mr Vincent and I thought well, you know I've arrived I'm a financial and academic success you know what more can you want I'm married to a fantastic wife Eileen she was a, a church going Methodist till she met me and after she met me she stopped going to church and so the, you know we were uh, a little different in our view she was a sort of um, but there was something in her that always longed for God but never found him in the, in the Methodist church and so we lived for five years in that state and then one day there was a knock on our door and there were two young American gentlemen there and, they, and, and, I, and I said, oh, it's nice to meet you. And they said, yeah, we're, we're just going, we wanted to talk to you about, uh, about our, our religion. It's Mormonism. And I said, well, I'm not interested in your religion, but I said, I'd like to talk to you about America. When I discovered that one of them was from Rochester, New York, that made it even more appropriate so I said look I don't want to talk about Mormonism I don't believe I, I'm an atheist I don't believe in God at all but I said I'd like to talk to you know, about America what's it like you know, what, what's Rochester like particularly they said well look we have to teach 
our 30-minute lesson on Mormonism. They're not even teaching the Bible properly. <laughs> so that's not what it really says. So I said, I said to Eileen, you've got a Bible somewhere, haven't you? She said, yeah, I've got one, but I've never read it since we got married. It's, it's in a case somewhere. So I said, well, go find it. And I want to read your Bible, and I want to check up to see whether these Mormons are teaching the Bible properly. So I started to read, open the Bible, and for some reason, obviously the Spirit of God, I began to read in the Gospel of John. And these guys used to come every, every Monday night and prod me, and I would read the Bible to, to refute what they were saying, because I didn't believe what they were saying was true. <laughs> but what gradually happened, I, I, as I, I became more and more preoccupied with this person, Jesus Christ, that I was reading about. And I began to be confronted with him as a person, and I couldn't help but admire him, I couldn't help you know, appreciate just the way he, he conducted his life. And I began to speak to Eileen. Just imagine, supposing this was a truth. Supposing there really is a Jesus Christ. And there really is a, a heaven and a hell. There really is a God. But supposing the Bible were true. And there really is a God. I said, put me, I said, and just imagine that there is an eternal life. And she said, oh, I believe all that stuff. I always have. And she said, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And, and, I, and I said to her, well then, why do you live no differently to me? And we... We had, a fir- had our first row. <laughs> I said, if I ever became a real Christian, I said, look, if this is true, if there really is a Jesus Christ, and, and if, he really, if this is really an accurate historical record of that person, and if, if, if there is a living God, and, and believing in him or not believing in him makes all the difference between heaven and hell, and if there is an eternal life of, of the incredible beauty and wonder that you know, the Bible talks about, I said, it's either the most important news that hit the world, or it's not worth the paper that it's written on. I said, you've got to come to one of these two conclusions. And I said, if I ever became a Christian, which I never will, I said, at least I'd be a real one. <laughs> That's what I said. That's what I said then, and I said, it, it, clearly, it's, it's either worth everything or it's worth nothing. I said, if ever I became a Christian, it would be 100% passion. I said, I, I'd go on my hands and knees across broken glass to get people saved if there was a real hell. And, and Eileen, at that time, decided she'd rather have a passive atheist than a fanatical Christian. So she tried to stop us having any more to do with this because she said, look, it's spoiling our marriage and, and, and uh, we never had rows about anything before, but now you're getting all this religious stuff. You're, getting, you're, you're, you're not the man I married and I don't like it. And at that point, I was visited by what I believe was the only real on fire for Jesus Christian that I knew. This guy was actually, I used to be a mad keen rugby football player. That was my, that was my love. And, I used to, and this guy, we played in the same rugby team and I never, I never knew that he was 
a real Christian because he had he'd married, so I discovered, married the wrong girl and the backslid away completely. But, but, but uh, he, he was sent, he was now in the British military and he was sent by the British military to Nottingham University to do a one-year course, a one-week course, I'm sorry, in advanced electronics. So he suddenly appeared at the university where I was lecturing. And we had a total shock bumping into each other. I said, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I've just been sent here on a week's course. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, I, I, I'm one of the lecturers here. And he said, wow. So he came to my home that evening, and, we, and there was the Book of Mormon, there was the Bible still on the table from the previous Monday night. And he looked at these books and said, what's that? That's not this, your usual reading material. <laughs> and I said, well, I've just been having these talks with these Mormons. And I said, I'm just beginning to wonder about God. And, uh, I, and, and, and he said, look, he said, I, don't, I can't really help you. But he said, I know a man who takes a, a Friday night class for, for young people and it's, a, it's full of life and fire. He said, um, I'll, I, and I used to go to that class years ago. He said, I'll put him in touch with you. He just lives about uh, 40 miles away in, in another town. And, and I said, well, I said, I'll, I'll make the journey to find out one way or other whether there's any, any truth in this stuff. So he made an appointment. And I didn't know I went to see this guy. On the way, she said, no, don't let's go and talk to this man. It's going to cause trouble. She said, let's go to a Chinese restaurant in six. <laughs> And I said, no, I'm going to go. I said, I'm going to find out one way or the other whether there's any reality in this thing. So I got to this man's house and sat down and I said, okay. And he was, I should have mentioned, by the way, that he had, I think, uh, three doctorates. He was a brilliant uh, intellectual. I mean, he was brilliant uh, academically, I should say. He wasn't intellectual at all. But he, and he, was a, he was the chief engineer of the whole city of, of Derby. He, he was at the height of his success in his profession. And he was the sort of guy that I needed because I was a, you know, pretty arrogant about you know, myself. So I thought, well, this guy is easily my intellectual equal. So I said, okay, prove God to me then. <laughs> and he said, Alan, I can't do that. But he said, I want to tell you this, that I know God more closely as a deep, intimate friend than you know your wife. And he said, uh, I, and God wants to know you the same way. But he said, the, the barrier between you and God is the barrier of sin. He doesn't give some great complicated theological argument. He just gave the simple ABC. He said, the only way for you to come to know God is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He said, now, you may not understand it. I'm not sure I fully understand it myself. But he said, I've believed this for years and it's transformed my life. So he said, you can make a decision to decide to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And when you will make that decision to believe, even though you don't understand it, then the power of what Jesus did will operate and the barrier between you and God will be removed because the barrier is sin. And I thought, well, I live a pretty upright, respectable life. He said, no, Alan, he said, in the sight of God, you're a sinner. And, and somehow, although I didn't like what he said, I knew he was telling me the truth. And, and then he said, Jesus isn't dead, he's alive. And if you were prepared to invite him to come, he would come by his spirit and come into your life and take over your life and make a totally new person out of you. He said, now, that's what I'm offering you, or this is what he's offering you. Do you want this? And for some reason that I cannot explain even to this day, I said, yes, I want it. And, and he said, 
okay, then you better pray. I said, well, how do you pray? He said, well, just talk to God, though you've been talking to me. So I thought, well, I better get on my knees, because that was the religious thing to do. So I got on my knees, and I said, all right, God, I'm not even sure if you're there or not. I want to be honest with you. But if you are there, I want to know you. And, and if the way to know you is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, then I'm making a decision to believe it, although it doesn't make any sense to me, frankly. But I said, I said and, and, and if you are the living Lord Jesus Christ, then it's obvious to me, if you created me, you have every right to rule out over what you've created. Now, I knew that before I was converted. I said, if you are the creator God, and I'm your creation, then it's obvious you have the perfect right to rule over me, so I, I, that's not a problem to me. So you come, and you take over my life, and I'll live the rest of my life for you and to serve you. But I, I said, I don't want religion, I want you to reveal yourself to me. Now, and that was the mother prayer I prayed. I had no consciousness of sin, I didn't confess any sins. But, uh, and then, then he turned to my wife Eileen and said, well, what about you? And she said, oh, I've all believed, always believed all this stuff. I believe, he said, he said then I remember, I'll never forget this. He said, look, Eileen, he said, here's my Bible. And supposing I was to give it to you as a free gift, and I hold it out to you, when would it become yours? And she said, when I reach out and take it, exactly. He said, Eileen, have you ever reached out and taken Jesus Christ into your life as your Lord and your Saviour? And, and she said, no, I never have. And then she said, I don't really want that much religion. She said, I want a God that I can go to on Sunday or Easter and not. And I said, but when he's there, I, want to, when, but I, don't want to, I don't want him taking over my life. He said, there's no other Christianity. And, and after, she fought ten times harder than I did. Screamed and yelled and cried and said, come on dear, let's leave this place. It's going to ruin our marriage. It's going to ruin our marriage. I said, anyway, she finally broke down, got on her knees, and all she said was this. She said, all right, Lord, I give in. <laughs> That's all she said. And then the two of us um, entered, you know, were saved. And we, we, you know, we, we had a little prayer and we got into the car and I and drove home. And, uh, and I, felt, I felt a tremendous peace. I said to her, I said, I don't know what's happening to me. I said, I just feel so clean. I just feel such peace. Not felt like this ever in my life before. She said, I feel the same. I said, wow, this is great. We got home and, um, and uh, sat down and I took out my packet of cigarettes and gave one to Eileen and took one myself. I wasn't a, a total... I, mean, I had control of everything. I even had control over my smoking. Because, I, I, I mean, I didn't smoke during the day because I worked in a research laboratory with, where it was totally forbidden. So I had a few cigarettes in the evening, maybe one in the morning. And I, I was so disciplined in every way. So cigarettes were not... My slave, they were my servant. That's what I thought. So I took out the cigarettes, gave one to Eileen, and took one myself. And I was just about to light my cigarette up when I heard this voice in my heart. I, it wasn't audible, but it was a clear voice. And somehow I knew it was God. Now that was two hours after I was converted. And this, this voice said, you don't need those anymore, throw them away. I thought, ooh, that's God. And I said to Eileen, I said, I said, God's just spoken to me. She said, what did he say? He said, we're to stop smoking. So I took my cigarette out and took hers without asking her. 
threw them in the trash and said, we're not supposed to smoke anymore. And, I, and, and I've never smoked since. See, I, I, I've learned this, that, that if you obey God when he speaks to you, he always gives you the grace to do what he's telling you to do. Amen? But you've got to do it in his time, not your time. You remember how the children of Israel wouldn't go into the promised land at the right time? When they tried to go in later under their own strength, they were horribly defeated. So there's a time when God speaks, and that's the time that you obey him. I learned that within two hours of being converted. Then, and that was on a Tuesday night. On that Friday night, this same man that had led me to Christ, he ran his Friday night young people's, you know, young adults Bible class. And, he, and, he, and, and so we decided we would go there. And we got on my motorcycle. I used to drive. Ever heard of a Vincent Black Shadow? Ever heard of that? Well, well, I had a Vincent Black Shadow with my name on the tank. I'm in Road Pania on the back and we're on our way to this meeting. And on the way to this meeting, I heard this voice again. And this is what it said. It said, buy some coffee and buy some sugar. I thought, that's God. So I better obey. So I stopped at the grocery store. I said, what are you doing? I said, God just spoke to me. She said, what did he say? I said, he told me to buy some coffee and sugar. She said, what for? I said, I haven't the faintest idea. <laughs> But I said, if God speaks, you obviously obey him. Now, this was, this was three days after I was converted. So I went into the grocery store and bought the coffee and sugar, put it into my pannier, went on to the meeting, and we had a great meeting. And, and I really, really was blessed by the way this man taught. And there was lots of... And I looked around, and actually, I thought all Christians were dowdy, sort of, you know, horrible... I, I saw some quite beautiful women that loved it, and I thought, hey, it's not going to be so bad after all, <laughs> These were my first thoughts. It's not going to be so bad afterwards being a Christian because there's some quite nice people. And, um, but when the meeting was over and they served refreshments, suddenly the girls ran out of the kitchen and said, we've forgotten to bring any coffee or sugar. I said, I said don't worry. I said, God spoke to me on the way here. And I went, <laughs> now, that's how I began. I, I could tell you lots of stories like that. Um, and, I, and I, I, one other thing I, I, I'll add is this, that at this time, I was, as I say, I was lecturing full-time, uh, a senior lecturer at Nottingham University, and it was the time when you get our long summer vacation. We just finished all the exams, and, and I had till next October before I had to start lecturing again. That's when we got saved. Eileen was off to work at that time. We didn't have any children. So I got her Bible, and I began to read it. I just had this sudden insatiable appetite to read the Bible. So I began to read the Bible. And I, I started to read from Genesis and read right through. I was reading probably 12 to 14 hours a day, making careful notes on every chapter. And I was using my best intellect. And, and when I got to things like, I still remember reading uh, Leviticus for the first time. It's like a butcher's shop. I thought, what is this stuff? Is this about? <laughs> when I came to, you know, you know Joshua making the sun stand, stand still. I thought, well, I could calculate mathematically. What a crazy thing. that I mean, it would, one half of the earth would be frozen, the other half would be, be burnt alive. It stopped. It stopped still. I That's obviously a myth. And, and then I got you know, Jonah swallowing the whale. and I'm sorry, the whale swallowing Jonah. I beg your pardon. And I, I thought, well, the, Genesis 1, I was still a convinced evolutionist. I thought, well, yeah, just... But I finally got through to Hebrews 11, verse 3. That was after three months reading and I made careful notes on every chat. And some of the bits were quite good and I enjoyed them. But I, I was just selecting the bits that I liked. 
I got to Hebrews 11 verse 3 and it says this, By faith we believe that the worlds were made by him out of things which it does not appear. And God stopped me dead in my tracks that particular Wednesday morning and it was quite a long conversation. He said, Alan, you're not going anywhere till you change your attitude to my word. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you're reading it with your intellect, with your mind. He said, your mind isn't big enough to understand me. He said, I've given you a new spirit. You, when you were born again, I gave you a new spirit. And that spirit is like a, it's, it's young and immature, but he said, I want you to understand that the only way to, to really read the Bible is to let my spirit speak to your spirit and show you things which are in the word, but they're much deeper and richer than the actual words which are used. And he said, now, I want you to see it like this. He said, he said you know, you've, you've not got any children yet, but you've got friends and relatives who've got little children. He said, you remember how a little two or three year old will sit on its daddy's lap and daddy will read stories or just tell stories and that little one will believe every word that daddy says. And I said, yeah, I've seen that now. It's very cute. I said, I'm longing for the day when I'll have my own kids. And he said, well, he said, this is who you are spiritually. He said, I, you're just a, you're just a, a, a newborn baby. Just, just, let's just imagine that you're just like a little two or three year old. So you can talk to daddy and he can talk to you. But he said, I want you to have an attitude when you read my word, that you're sitting on daddy's lap, daddy's got his arm around you, and he's explaining to you what the word means. See, because that's where you are spiritually. He said, and I will gradually develop your, your spirit and train your spirit until when it comes to maturity, you'll be able to begin to comprehend the deep riches of what the word says. And then in that morning, he gave me three principles, which have been my life since I was a Christian, almost for almost 60 years now. And this is principle number one, is that when I read the Bible, I, he said, you read the Bible like a little child listening to his daddy and saying, Daddy, I believe every word you say, even though I don't understand what it means. He said, he said my word's infallible, and I want you to believe that. And I want you to, even though it doesn't make any sense, or even though you don't understand it, you say, it is the infallible word of God, and I've decided to believe it, not because I can understand it, but because God caused men to write it without fault. That was principle number one. Number two, he said, when you go through the Bible, you'll find that there are many promises. And I have actually gone through the Bible and I've counted the promises and I make it approximately 30,000 promises in the whole Bible. He said, when you come to a promise, claim it immediately to work in your life from the day you read it. Amen? Then the third principle was this. He says, when you come... So when you go through the Bible reading it, you'll find there are many commandments. And these commandments, uh, I learned later, are in the tense, both Hebrew and Greek, they're in, the, they're in what's called the present imperative, which means it's like a military commandment and the point of time is now. Amen? In other words, it, when I was in the military, I did two years in the British Air Force, just after the Second World War, everybody was drafted, and I still remember when the, the sergeant walked into our billet and said, everybody, stand by your beds. You were on your feet in 30 seconds. Amen? He spoke with military authority and the point of time was now. Now, all the commandments, all those which Jesus obeyed from his father are always written in that language. They are in what's called the present imperative and the point of time is now. So he said, when you come to a commandment, 
make a decision that you're going to obey it. Amen? And I've counted the, prom- I've counted the commandments in Scripture, and there are more than 17,000 of them. So these are the three principles. I believe every word like a little child. I claim every promise to be working in my life. And I obey every commandment with military now obedience. Have you got those three? And that's how, I, that's how I began to live. And that's how I've lived ever since and still live that way today. Now, and, and I remember getting on my knees and saying, okay, Lord, uh, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to obey all you've said to me this morning. But I said, look, if, I, if I'm going to step out now and trust you that every word of Scripture is absolutely infallible and every commandment of yours is absolutely um, uh, to be obeyed and every promise is, is for me. I said, I'm going I'm to risk my life, the, the life of my family, the life of any children that I get and my precious wife. I said, I'm going to risk them on this certainty of word. I'm just going to step out on your word as if it was solid rock. And I said, it better not let me down. <laughs> so I'm not going to hold back. I said, I, said, I want to know if you're there. And, and, and if your word is absolutely trustworthy. So I'm stepping out on it absolutely and I said, if, if this book ever lets me down, I will tear up my Bible and become a Buddhist. That's what I said. Well, I've never torn up a Bible, and I certainly haven't become a Buddhist. But what I've got is I've got well over 50 years of experience now of how amazing, how amazing the written scriptures are. And that, that absolutely the foundation of my life. Amen? Now, I'm taking some time on this because, you see, most of what God then began to speak to me was not only his audible voice, but more what he said to me through the scriptures. But it wasn't just, I just read them. They, they, they spoke to me with, with the, the, the voice of God behind it, and then it became the foundation for my faith. Because you know what it says? It says, faith comes by what? Hearing, not reading. Hello? Faith comes by hearing, literally, the specific spoken word of God. And until I got to that place, God couldn't begin to train me in the ways of faith. Amen? Now, about uh, four to six months after that, uh, God spoke to me about many things, and I could tell you stories, like my, my wife's sister, um, we started going to the local Baptist church, by the way, and, and they, were, they were evangelical, they were very nice, but they thought we were a bit fanatical because um, of my attitudes to these things. And, and in the first week or so that we were converted, Eileen had a sister who had been through all kinds of medical treatment in hospital and they had not been successful and they, after several operations which didn't succeed she was coming to our house to spend a week or two convalescing from, from being in hospital and she, and she arrived at our house by train from a, another part of England about 8 o'clock at night we went to the, to the, to the station and, and met her and brought her home and Eileen sat her in a chair this is my Eileen because I'll tell you, when she got saved, she got saved. She was talking the next day to people in a way that embarrassed me completely. Because <laughs> she, she's an extrovert and I'm an introvert. But she, she just, what she, what she received that night, she began to blaze, blaze it around everywhere. And uh, anyway, that, so when her, her sister, uh, Margaret, came into our house we, to, to recover for two or three weeks after all these you know, weeks in, unsuccessfully being treated in the hospital, and suddenly she said, you're not going to bed until you get saved. That's what she said to her. <laughs> and she took her through step by step to one of these little booklets on how to receive Jesus. And, uh, and, and anyway, Margaret responded and got saved. 
Uh, I, I, but uh, I'm not recommending that's the best thing to do, but she was, she got her saved anyway. And then we prayed for her, and she was immediately and totally completely healed. Because we thought that was normal Christianity. We thought that's what you did in church, but we hadn't been to church yet to find out that then they don't do that sort of thing anymore. <laughs> I also remember that, that, that I got involved immediately with the youth, and we were going to have a, uh, I think we're going to show some sort of, a probably a moody Bible film. I can't remember what it was, but we're going to have a, an evangelistic night anyway. We're going to show this movie in the church. And that night, we got a thick British, you know, pea soup of fog. You know, it was absolutely, you couldn't see any in front of your face. So nobody was going to be able to come to the meeting. So, so I said, well, we're not having this. So I stood at the door of my house and rebuked this fog. And within 20 minutes, it disappeared. And I thought that was normal Christianity. But when I got to the church and they began to brainwash me into normal evangelical unbelief and so I lost it all and it was seven years later when I was now a missionary in India that God had to undo all that unbelief and get me back to where I was when I was first saved you see I'm convinced of this that that when anybody is born again there's no such thing as congenital deafness in the spirit We're all born with perfect spiritual hearing. But we've got to learn how to develop it. Amen? And and I'm just giving you my own example because uh, I wasn't corrected wrongly by other Christians because I didn't know any at the time. So so my experience was, was, you know, this is how it happened. But then, anyway, some four to six months later, I forget exactly when it was, the same God that had said to me, buy the coffee and sugar, and the same God that has you know, said to me, stop smoking, he spoke to me again. And, and, and I, By the way, I did, after I got converted, I decided not to go to, to America. It wasn't the will of God. My boss, in, uh, a former boss in, in Harrow, he got a big raise for me and asked me to come and join them in the research team there. And, I'd, and I'd, so I resigned from the, from the college. I'd done my, my two years, which I had to do, and I was now going back to my former employer except I was now leading a research team and I was, I was given a big fat salary pay rise and I was in, put in charge of what was called the Blue Sky Group which was a group of, of, of scientists who were paid to think and, and you were paid to invent any idea that might possibly produce a product that made money if you wanted to you could go to the swimming pool and think as long as you thought it was a fantastic job I was, and I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And I used to think things. And I found that now I knew God, that I was a far better scientist than I was before. And, and I won't go into all the stories of how God helped me overcome patents of, of foreign competitors and other things. I mean, I just found that being a... I, I discovered God's a great scientist. I don't know whether you know that. <laughs> and by the way, I should say this, that the day that he met me, I, that moment, I, I, I became a convinced creationist, not by superior scientific arguments, but by a decision of faith. God be, God the, and then when I had my mind cleansed from all that um, stuff about evolution and all that secular humanism, it, it was cleansed out of my mind. What God did that particular morning is he bent down and rewired my mind, this is how I say it, to think like God. I began to think like God, and all my intellectual problems I had in the past, it would, they were just washed away, and I could, and I could think with, with the childlike simplicity of God, and I could hear God, and it was just wonderful. 
And I, now, of course, I can produce very powerful scientific arguments of, of the full hardiness of, 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 of the evolutionary theory. And scientifically, it's full of holes. And, you can, and so when I prepare my kids for those days when they have to face these things, I, I taught them scientifically the powerful arguments that are available to show that, that, that evolution theories are, are full of sci- holes scientifically. And you can tear them apart scientifically. You can't prove God, but you can certainly disprove evolution. Amen? Do you hear what I said? That's a side issue there. So I thank God for my, my cleansed mind that could think straight. And, and I could think like God. And, and God could come and, and his spirit could speak to my spirit. And my spirit was being absolutely enriched by the input of God's spirit until I was growing in comprehension and understanding of the word. Now I've studied very carefully and studied very hard. Um, but that, but, but the, my, the main driving force was the spirit of God. Anyway, to come back to this story that I broke into, God came to me one morning at the you know, height of my success and, and uh, everything else. But I did have one problem, which was a very serious, serious developing medical problem. And this particular morning, God spoke to me and he said, I want you to leave your job. I want you to go to India as missionaries. And it was just out of the blue. And uh, I, I told Eileen about it and she prayed about it and we agreed it was God so I was getting ready to leave but the problem was I, I, I tried to, to get one or two missionary societies to send me and every missionary society I went to they rejected me on health reasons because I, I'd got certain injuries through playing rugby and I, I had an arterial capillary at the back of my nose that would, that would rupture and it would start, it, wouldn't, it, it would burst you know, it was, what, what's the word for when a blood cell bursts well, it was more than that. This is, it was a hemorrhage, but sorry, it was an aneurysm. That's right. That's right. It was, a, it, and, and, and this, this this little capillary artery would would rupture, and and it would start pumping blood, and I and it would pour out of my out of my back of my throat and out of my nose, and 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 you couldn't stop it. I was rushed into hospital several times, and under anaesthetic, they'd get to the site of the bleeding and put pressure on it and then they could stop it bleeding before I bled to death. I'd have to have maybe three or four pints of blood uh, transfusion because I lost so much blood. So they said to me, well look, you can't possibly go to India as a missionary. You need to stay near to a hospital. But you can work at the home base. And, and yet God was saying, go. And I still remember this. On one of my vacations, I was walking, to, this was gone on for two or three years now, and, and I was getting to love my work more and more, and my desire to go and be a missionary was getting less and less. And because I had a great life, I was well paid and, and all the rest of it. But occasionally I had these uh, incidents where I had to be rushed into hospital and, and had to deal with this bleeding of my nose. And, uh, and, and I was getting uh, weaker. I, I, start, I, could, I started to get lose uh, weight. I... I used to live on spinach and liver to try and keep putting the hemoglobin. My hemoglobin was... I went once to give a blood transfusion. They said, you need it more than we do. <laughs> so I realized it was getting serious. And all that time, we were struggling with all these things. And, and I, was walking, I was walking the beach in southern England, and there was God walking with me and, and talking to me in the most intimate way. And he said, Alan, he said... You know, Kodak wrote a, a large um, uh, enterprise in India and, and you've been there a couple of times as a technologist to help them out with some of their problems. And he said, supposing Kodak wanted to send you to India um, 
And they said, no, we'll provide for you, we'll look after you, we'll, we'll provide accommodation and healthcare and everything else. He said, would you go? I said, oh yes, Lord, I'd go. I said, Kodak's a, a big company and, and I found them to be very honourable and trustworthy and they've been in business a long time. And he said to me, he said, I've been in business a lot longer. He said, he said can't you trust me? So I'm going to send you and I make a guarantee that I'll provide for you and meet every need of yours, but I want you in India um, to, for this particular project. And, and, and so I, I got on my knees and I said, okay, Lord, I will go. And I got home and, and talked to Eileen and she, she agreed. She's always been ready to, for these adventures. And, and we, so we put out a test and, and I said, well, look, Lord, just to make sure this is really you, I don't want to just take some of my money and pay my fares to India. I said, I want a sign from you. Would you just call someone supernaturally to pay my airfare, to pay my boat fare? Those days we went by boat. Pay our, pay the expenses of taking us to India. Then I know it's from you, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm not going to try and raise money. I'm just going to pray and wait. And, uh, Eileen went uh, to speak at a little ladies meeting about, I think, 15 ladies, old ladies, and she, and, um, when she was, when she sort of closed, a lady came to her and said, she said, my dear, while you were speaking, speaking, God told me that he wants to send you to India and I want to give, be the first one to give you a little gift towards it. And it, and it amounted to maybe, maybe $10. It was an old age pensioner's gift. She came home and she said, we got our first gift. Because I'd said to the Lord, I said, okay, Lord, if, if you're sending me, then at the first gift, I'll book our passage to India. And the Lord even told me the date. He said, you're going to sail on, on uh, March the 9th. He told me the day, told me the year. So we just prayed and waited and nothing happened. Um, when I got that first gift, I decided to take action. I went to the shipping uh, uh, company and they said, oh yes, there's a boat sailing on March the 9th. I said, that's the one. And, and I said, do I have to pay now? She said, no, you pay, you'll get a bill in a few days. You pay 10% down when that bill comes. Then you pay the rest of the passage money um, a month before you leave. So we said, okay, that's fine. So on the basis of that, I went back and resigned my job and uh, uh, we started making preparations to go to India. But nothing happened. And I was expecting God to heal me, but it, nothing happened now on that front. We came to... Um, and then we got a letter from the shipping company because Eileen, by the way, was now 27 weeks pregnant with our son Duncan, which was a crazy time to go to India. And uh, so we got a letter from the shipping company saying that because of my wife's condition, that uh, they couldn't confirm our passage without the, the, uh, the surgeon, ship surgeon, accepting the responsibility of a pregnant woman on board. And unfortunately, the present ships have just resigned, and we haven't appointed a new one, so we can't tell you whether you can go or not. So I resigned my job, we packed up everything and sent it to Liverpool, and uh, they weren't telling us that we'd get on the boat. Now this is, this is sort of faith for you, okay? And so we waited. And uh, it came to... We went, went up and we just testified. We, we, we went, I won't go into the whole story, it'll take too long, but we went to one week before we were due to sail. I got a letter from the shipping company saying, sorry it's so last minute, but we've just had a new ship surgeon appointed. He's perfectly happy to take the responsibility for your wife to travel. So if you still want these cabins, immediately send 
your balance of the passage money, which was, let's say it was about, I forget now, let's say five, six thousand dollars. It wasn't that much money in those days, but it was, it was a big sum of money. Please send the balance of your passage money by return of mail and we can confirm your booking. And, uh, and, and in the same mail, there were two envelopes. One was from the shipping company sending us, we wanted the money now and it's okay to go. And in the other envelope was a, a letter from a Lady Ogle, that was her name. She was a title lady who invested a lot of money in missions in India. And she said, I heard recently about um, that you're on your way to Gospel Literature Service to, to establish a high-quality colour printing press. And she said, I want to send this gift for you. It was, it was to the dollar. It was the money we had to send to the shipping company. And, and the, the, the cheque was in one envelope and the request was in the other envelope. So to, and then, now, now, this is the God that I serve. I, I could tell you many, many stories like this. So, so we got on the boat, and uh, on the boat, uh, uh, as we got on the boat, I had the worst nosebleed I'd had for, 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 for months. It poured. I thought, well, when I get on the boat, God's going to heal me. You know, I was waiting to be healed all the time. But it was worse than ever, and I lay on the boat you know, with blood pouring out of me. Alan, who is a trained nurse and, and knows a lot about this, she was able to stop that hemorrhaging, otherwise I don't know what would have happened. And, and we, we, we travelled to India. On the way, we went through a terrible storm in, in the Mediterranean for several days. The ship was being thrown around all over the place and Eileen went into premature labour. So the ship surgeon built an oxygen tent just to say, well, you know, it's a viable baby. It possibly can survive. So we'll build an oxygen tent and, and hope for the best. But as we were sailing, um, we had to go across. We, had, we were going to, going to Karachi, Pakistan before we came to Mumbai. She so said, we will put you ashore at Karachi because it's much safer than, and get you into a hospital. But we had no money. I haven't told you all this, but I gave all the money away and gave the house away and the things, other things as well. So we literally had nothing. And uh, so I was praying hard on the boat deck. And as we were sailing towards Karachi, um, the labour pain stopped. And the doctor said, well, I think we'll take a, I think it's going to be okay. We'll, we'll make it to Mumbai. So we got to Mumbai. And Eileen was carried off the boat on a stretcher. I was carried off on the boat on a stretcher because I had lost so much blood. <laughs> and that's how we started our ministry. I mean, can you think of anything more ridiculous? <laughs> but I learned a lot of lessons of faith. And, and, and it, took, it was altogether 12 years, I mean, from... Uh, in India before I was suddenly powerfully miraculously healed. So I had, to, I had to walk that a long, long way. But you see, God was telling me things all the way. But the bottom line of my life is I can hear God. I'll tell you one more story, if I may. And that's to do with my daughter. My daughter, Rachel, uh, uh, grew up in India and, uh, and she became a fantastic believer. And then after she did a fantastically, she did an incredibly good uh, university degree in London in biochemistry. They wanted to, to stay there permanently and continue to do research, but she gave up everything to go and serve Reinhard Bonnke in Africa. She and her husband organized his crusades in Africa for about six or seven years. And uh, during that time um, in Harare, Zimbabwe, during a Bonnke crusade, um, there was a terrible demonic attack upon the team which, which resulted in her being caught in a terrible car wreck 
and uh, she she was crushed between two vehicles, and from here downwards, she had 57 fractures in the crushed bone. They they got her out of it, and uh, and it's a long long story of how we got her back to England. Um, I won't tell the whole story, but we got her back to England. But she was now in plaster from her chest down, and uh, she'd been like this for almost four months, waiting for these bones to heal. And they wouldn't heal. So they were now deciding to go and open up her legs from top to bottom, and, well not from top to bottom, but from where the fractures started down to the rest of her feet. And at every fracture, they're going to pack every fracture with little live bone chips, hoping to get a, hoping to get a fusion. And Rachel was in our prayer meeting. Every, every Sunday night, we had a, a warring praise night in our church and she was part of this church and a powerful part of it although she was permanently just in a in a a, a, a sort of a cross between a, a stretcher and a wheelchair it was a funny sort of device and she just lay in plaza from, from chest downwards and she was there in the meeting and, and God began to powerfully move in that meeting and then God spoke to me this is why I'm telling this because I heard the voice of God say this the voice of God said this. He said that the spirit of death which tried to kill Rachel in Harare is now in her bones resisting the healing cast it out. Now I didn't even know that there was such a thing as a spirit of death. I'd never heard of such a thing. But what I'd learned was that if God speaks you do what he says. Amen? So in that meeting I, I walked straight over to Rachel and stood over, I laid my hands on her, and I said, God's just spoken to me, and I'm going to say what God told me to say. And I rebuked that, that spirit of death in the name of Jesus, and I commanded it to come out of her. And I said, get out of these bones. I said, you, you tried to kill her in Harare, in that, that, that motor crash, but she survived, and that was a miracle, which I hadn't time to go into. She was given a 5% chance of survival. She was in a coma for five days and God brought her all out of all of that. But strangely enough, the bones weren't all here, which is some of the strange ways of the miraculous. So now she was in our meeting in England and she was under the care of the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital, the best institution of orthopaedics in Europe, and they were doing their best, but they couldn't get these bones to heal. So in this prayer meeting, God speaks to me and says, speak to that spirit the spirit of death that tried to kill your daughter in Harare and command it to come out of her bones. So I just go over to her and I do exactly what I'm told to do. Now, I, you, see, I, you see, if you speak a word from God with God's authority, and God told you to say, it's got God's authority behind it. Yeah. Amen? So I didn't foam and roll on the floor. I just said once, I said, come on, you, you spirit, get out in Jesus' name. And, and that spirit, all I know is that three weeks later, her legs were perfectly healed. If you see my daughter today, she runs around with perfect, complete health and recovery. And, 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 and I just thank God I could hear that voice. Amen? I mean, you say, what would have happened if I didn't hear the voice? Well, and what would happen if I hadn't obeyed it? Well, I, I don't know. I thank God I heard it, and I thank God I obeyed it. Amen? So I think if, if we are prepared to learn and prepared to be trained by him, these are the sorts of things he's going to bring you, you into as well. Amen? Well, I, I don't know what time I'm supposed to stop, but I think it's about now, isn't it? So I think I'll bring it to a close now. And, and, and there's lots of things I could teach you about hearing the voice of God and many other things that are in my heart. And, and, but I think well, this is the focus that God wanted me to have today. And tonight, we're going to move in the miraculous. Tonight, we'll pray for anyone that's got a physical condition. Tonight, I'm going to impart to you, and I, I explain that tonight. I'm not going to do that now. 
But, but if there's anybody here, I'm, I'm just going to bring this to a close now and hand back to, to John. Amen? So let's just lift our hearts a moment. Father, I want to thank you that I can genuinely say before all these precious people that for oh, 57 years, I guess it is, I've been able to hear your voice from two hours after my conversion, right up to this present time. And I know that one great reason is because if you speak to me, I obey it. And I know that my spiritual healing has got sharper and sharper because of my obedience. And I pray, Lord, I pray, Lord, for these precious people, that each one of them will learn to, first of all, hear your voice, recognize your voice, obey your voice, and see the, the wonderful fruit of doing exactly what you tell them to do exactly at the time you tell them to do it. Lord, I, I know that the, the, the factor that makes it all work is the obedience to what you say. Just like our Lord Jesus Christ. He was able to say, Father, I thank you that you always hear me. I, he said, I, I live by your word. I thank you Jesus could say, whatever I hear in the Spirit, I, I, I judge it. And I always judge correctly. I, always, I never make a mistake about hearing my Father's voice. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And Lord, I pray for that, that hearing to be granted to each one here and the obedience that goes with it. So that, that hearing might get sharper and sharper and more and more precise. And that through these precious people, little nobodies like me, you can start to do amazing things to glorify the name of Jesus. In whose mighty name we pray. Amen. God bless you.